Now we want to turn our attention to God's Word, and I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, those of you who were anticipating or expecting another message in the book of Acts, uh, don't be too disappointed. We'll come back to that next Lord's Day. But given the circumstances of this past week and of this coming week with the election now looming just ahead of us, it seemed good to us. And this was somewhat of a last decision, but as the week pressed on into yesterday, it seemed good to us that we pause that series and simply share with you some thoughts uh, to help us heal, to help us move forward, to help us come together in love as the people of God. And so the text again is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Please uh, follow along as I read God's precious word to us. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, in this hour of testing, in this hour of trial, of tension, of difficulty, of grief, of fear, we come to you. And Father, we come to you knowing that you are the God that we heard read of a few moments ago. You are the God of Isaiah 40, you are the one who is high and exalted, the everlasting God, and before whom the, the nations of the earth are but a drop from a bucket. They are as nothing, and you 
raise up leaders and you knock leaders down at your will for you sit enthroned above the circle of the earth and all the inhabitants are nothing more than grasshoppers in your sight. What a God you are and oh how good it is to be able to entrust ourselves to you. At a time like this when elections are happening, a time like this when there is grief and angst and fear over the shooting of Walter Wallace, in times like this when a city that we love experiences tension and turmoil, at times like this when things are confusing and things are hard, oh, how we need, how we need to rest in you and to Wait upon the Lord knowing that you will renew our strength. And though we are weary and exhausted, we will run and not be weary. We will walk and not fight faint. And we will soar on wings like eagles. Oh, how good to be able to rest in you. But Father, we also know, need to know your will. We need to know how you want us to live in times like this. And so we open up this text of scripture and look at a few others as well uh, to learn your will for us for this moment in our lives and in your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we, as we come to this text this afternoon, I should say just by way of brief introduction that the book of 1 Corinthians was written to the church that was in Corinth. Corinth was a town in the first century that was corrupt. I think if you were to stop and compare it to a modern day town that has sort of a reputation, so to speak, for corruption and sin, it, it might be the first century version of Las Vegas or something of that nature. Corinth was known for its corruption. It was known for its immorality. It was known for its cultural differences. It was known for uh, much sin and many heartaches, which might explain why the Corinthian church was one of the more, uh, one of the weaker churches, one of those churches in the New Testament that had a tremendous amount of problems within the church. There were cultural differences, there were ethnic issues, there were people who were playing party in the church. So there were those of Paul, those of Cephas, those of Apollos, those that had their favorites. There was class partiality, there were the haves and the have-nots. This was part of the culture of Corinth that had seeped into the life of the church. And 1 Corinthians is all about Paul bringing correction and redirection to their lives. So I think as you hear those details, you probably don't have any difficulty seeing the relevance of this for us today. There is much to grieve all around us. There is much division, much strife, much tension. And we are, we are hoping that this message will lead to a measure of healing and of help as we mend the bruises and the breaks of this election process that is now coming to a head this week. This is not going to be a normal sermon uh, in which we kind of just stick with an individual text and it may not even sound that sermonic at different points. It's more of a, a shepherd to sheep talk. It's, 
it's more just of a moment in which I, I think it would be good for you to hear from us a few simple encouragements uh, that might help you and help us all to heal and not hate, uh, to come together and not break apart, to, to move forward and not fall behind. As we look at this text, 1 Corinthians 13, as we look at ourselves, as we look at each other, as we look at our world, there are a few things that it brings to mind that I think would be good for us to hear. And again, uh, these are going to be simple thoughts, but I trust that they will help us in these days. There are going to be several thoughts that I share with you, uh, eight or nine of them simply expressed. If you're taking notes, I'll try to make them clear as we arrive at each point. The first point is this, brothers and sisters, if, if we are genuine Christians, if we love Christ, we are called simply to love each other. No matter what our differences, no matter what our perspectives, no matter what our fears or concerns, we are called to love each other with a love that will look like 1 Corinthians 13. It is a love that will be kind. It will be patient. It will not envy. It will not boast. It will not insist on its own way or be arrogant or rude. It will not be irritable or resentful. It will not rejoice when wrong happens. It's a love that will bear all things and believe all things. And no matter how desperate and dark the odds may seem, it will hope in all things and endure all things. This is a love that will never end. Paul says this is the love we are to have for each other no matter what. If in fact we are genuine Christians, we are called to love each other and to love each other with a love that looks like that. Number two, if, if others think and vote differently than us, let us believe the best. Let us believe the best and judge charitably. If others think and vote differently than us, let us believe the best and judge charitably. One of those things that has worked its way deeply into my soul in recent time has been an awareness that we all have different life experiences. We all have different circumstances. We have all had different facts and realities hit us and confront us. We have all had different perceptions, different education, different background, different cultures, different sources, trusted sources of information. And all of these things 
lead us to think, to vote, to choose differently. And as we consider this, it should lead us to choose charitableness over judgment, to not impugn motives, to not think others evil or judge them uncharitably. We as the Lord's people are, are seeking to do the best we can with the knowledge and information and burdens that we have. So let us, if we think differently, if we vote differently, let us heed Paul's word. Love believes all things. It, it believes the best about others. It chooses charitableness. Number three. If someone is afraid, if in these days someone is afraid and faint-hearted, if someone is afraid and faint-hearted, either before Tuesday as the election arrives or Wednesday morning once perhaps the results are in, if somebody is afraid and faint-hearted, don't correct them. Rather, comfort them. Even if they think radically different than you do about politics, do not correct their fear. Comfort their fear. First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians 5 verses 13 and 14 say, Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, we urge you, admonish the idle, encourage, encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak, be patient with them all. Fearful faint-heartedness are common to all of us. I want to share with you a blog post that I wrote recently. It's a little bit long, but I think it will help us in this moment. So please indulge me as I read something I wrote just a couple of weeks ago. It goes like this. I was scheduled for an MRI recently to diagnose the cause of unrelenting back pain. This wasn't to be my first MRI. I've had a few before, all with little or no trauma. But this experience started badly since I had to wait to be seen for nearly 50 minutes while breathing into a COVID mask with my back aching, my headache stabbing, and a low-grade apprehension building. When finally called into the testing room, I was told to put on a strange-looking outfit and then lie down on my aching back on a hard, barely-padded surface. The technician was kind, but matter-of-fact, in telling me that I would have to lie motionless for 30 minutes head first inside the MRI machine. That's when panic first surged. How am I going to do that? How can I lie motionless for 30 minutes in the very position that hurts me the most and do it head first inside of this machine? Mind you, all of that flitted through my brain five times faster than the speed of speech. What happened after that took only seconds to occur but was so traumatic that it will be long seared into my psyche. Just a few ticks into the machine, I panicked. 
And within another few seconds, I had several high-speed sensations totally unnerve me. The machine's steady rat-a-tat sounds were too loud. The headset FM music intended to mask the machine noise had gone to an obnoxious advertisement with the volume too high. The enclosed tunnel for my body was too narrow. The ceiling of the tunnel was so close as nearly to touch my face. Thoughts sped. I got to get out of here, but I don't think she can hear me. What if she can't hear me? Then I'm in here for 30 minutes. What if it breaks and I cannot get out? I have to grab the little mic she gave me to talk with her, but where did it go? Oh no, just when I thought I was in all the way, she's moving my bed even further into the machine, another two to three feet deeper in, or at least so it feels. I feel like I'm sinking into the machine, like I'm being swallowed. I can't do this. I got to get out. I can't, I can't. Let me out. Thankfully, the technician heard me and let me out, but not before I was sorely traumatized. And so it was that a six foot four, fairly healthy and reasonably rational man with a pretty high pain threshold and a proven history of effective personal stress management was reduced to a puddle of distress in a matter of seconds. Second, seven hours later, I was still a mess emotional, tired, teary, shaken, ready for bed in the hope that it could put, I could put it all to rest. And I did sleep well, but woke up the next morning still tired and shaken with the feeling that I, in my humanness, my weakness, my vulnerability, my frailty, my complexity, and my fragility had all been exposed. Fear has new meaning to me now. Sometimes there are instinctual triggers and uncontrollability to some forms of fear that are too horrifying for words. I wondered, is there a lesson in any of this? Heeding the words of a man I respect, I don't want to waste my MRI experience by quickly dismissing or denying it as no big deal. What do I do with this? What am I to learn from it? How might I help others in the light of it? One fact that comes to mind as I process this moment is that fear is sometimes so reflexive, so strong, so deep that it can seize control of our thoughts with sudden and then stubbornly terrifying force and often in defiance of what others might think is reason. Sometimes fear cannot be reasoned with, or at least that's how it really, really, really feels. One thing I know, the next time I encounter someone who battles fears, I will resist the temptation to question the rationality of those fears. Sometimes fear just happens. When pain is real, when life presses in, when the tunnel into which we are squeezed leaves us too little room to breathe, when the daily rat-a-tat noise of an angry, violent world increases, and when people feel trapped alone, vulnerable, and defenseless. They, we, are going to be afraid, and sometimes wildly so. I'd guess that you know what I'm talking about. Like me, almost all of us have had at least moments of soul-seizing, traumatizing fear. Fear is common to us all, even if we try to project otherwise. In truth, there's a fear pandemic across our world these days. 
Some fear being alone. Others fear being in community. Some fear that they will never truly be known. Others fear that they will truly be known. Some fear poverty, others fear prosperity. Some fear COVID contamination. Others fear those who try to make them wear masks to avoid COVID contamination. Some fear the effect of not meeting for church. Others fear the effect of meeting for church. Some fear their husband's manipulation and abuse. Others fear their wife's abuse and venom. Some fear one result of the pending election with tearful dread. And others fear the other result of the pending election with tearful dread. Some fear that they will never have full freedom in America. Others fear that they will no longer have full freedom in America. Some fear the return of lynch mobs. Others fear the spread of violent protests. Some are police officers who fear for their lives. Others are blacks who fear police officers. Some fear the funding of the police. Others fear the defunding of the police. Some fear being blamed for what they didn't do. Others fear that no one will accept responsibility for what has been done. Some fear that they will be swallowed up in fear. Others fear that somebody might find out that they are afraid. We might be tempted to rush to judgment when we hear that list. Why? Why should they be afraid? We're the ones who should be afraid. The facts don't support that fear. Why don't people just be reasonable and logical like me? But that kind of self-righteous and callous judgment is not the answer. My MRI experience taught me at least that. Fears, fears resist arguments. Truth be told, I'll admit that I don't know fully what to do about our fear pandemic, except to say that guilt-mongering won't help. Perhaps we should start within the church by sitting down with each other to listen hard and deep. Maybe we should be more concerned about comforting our brothers and sisters than about correcting them. Maybe we should be more concerned about loving the elect than about arguing over the election. Maybe we should hold each other's hand, weep along with the weeping, and then gently reassure each other that there is one who alone can give our spirits peace. One thing I know is that we should not start by posting our raging sarcasm in ranting arguments on Facebook. A storm is gathered, and perhaps it's time for all of us to pause and admit that we're all afraid, even if some more than others. Perhaps it's time to respond each other, to each other with something other than a long list of facts to debunk their fears. The truth is that all of our fears are a mix of spiritual forgetfulness and doubt and genetic wiring and facts and logic known to us but not to others and life experiences and concerns all blended with the daily glut of information, misinformation and disinformation that pours into our lives. People's resultant fear is real. Even if we believe that their reasons aren't, that fear is real, it is powerful, it is visceral and it can be relentless. 
believe it or not, I thought about all of that in the wake of and shadow of that MRI experience. If nothing else, my daily fears, and I have plenty of them, probably as many as you do, now mixed with a panic attack, I will never forget in light of these things. My hope is that they will affect how I care for people. My hope is that they will change my tone when I confront fear in others. Now more than ever, I want, I want my tone to be not corrective, but supportive, not argumentative, but, and denying, but sympathetic and comforting, not critical and dismissive, but respectful and attentive. That's what I hope my love and our love will look like in the days to come. If someone is afraid and faint-hearted, don't correct them or argue with them, but comfort them as a brother and a sister in the Lord. And know that for a variety of reasons, some will feel this election one way or another more personally, more directly than others will, and will feel the fear and the grief and the angst more deeply. Do not criticize or correct, but let us comfort. Number four, if a brother or sister has offended you, if a brother or sister has offended you or you know that you have offended them, go to them in humble, peace-seeking love. If a brother or sister has offended you in this whole election process and all that has surrounded it, if a brother or sister has offended you, or if you know that you have offended them, go to them in humble, peace-seeking Love. This, this election season has produced many hurts along the way. There have been unkind words. There have been harsh judgments. There have been insensitive spirits. There have been dismissive attitudes, profound misunderstandings, angry outbursts. And I suspect that more is to come. More is to come. How does the Bible tell us? How does Jesus tell us to respond to such moments? Jesus says that if you are unable to cover these offenses with grace and love, then you need to confront them with gentleness and grace. In Matthew 18 and verse 15, if your brother sins against you, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If a brother, if a sister offends you, go and speak to them alone in gentleness and grace and seek to be restored. In Matthew 5, Jesus turns the tables a little bit. And teaches us if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. 
and then come and offer your gift. Notice Matthew 18, if your brother has offended you, go. Matthew 5, if you have offended your brother, go. You see, Jesus is saying that when it comes to conflict and argument and disagreement and offense and grief, the responsibility is always on me, on you, on each one of us individually. We, we, we don't have the freedom, King Jesus says, we don't have the freedom to let offenses linger. And if we cannot cover sins, a multitude of sins with just the, the forbearance of love, then we must gently go and talk and seek restoration and reconciliation. I'm here to tell you that that is never easy, but it is often blessed and it is always right. Never easy, often blessed, always right. Fifth, if somebody comes to you, if somebody comes to you sharing how you have offended them, if somebody comes to you sharing how you have offended them, seek the humility, seek the humility to receive it without argument or self-defense. If somebody comes to you to share how you have offended them, seek the humility to receive it, to receive it without argument or self-defense. Take a posture of learner and listener. As we have taught in the past, assume that you are at least partly wrong. In words, in attitudes, in tone, in timing, in delivery, assume that there is probably some offense in there that's real. Do not be wise in your own eyes, but in the words of James, be open to reason. Be open to reason. Receive the correction, the input, the observation, even the accusation of others. Receive it with all grace and all humility. Don't be self-defensive. Don't be argumentative. Walk in the humility of Christ. I think about Christ. He who never did anything wrong was so humble that he was willing to be treated as if he had done everything wrong. So that we could be treated in a way that we don't deserve. What amazing love this is. And surely it is a model for us to follow. Number six. If you're, I'll just put it this way, if, if your guy wins, if your guy wins, don't celebrate too loudly or publicly. If your guy wins, don't celebrate too loudly or publicly. I'm not saying don't rejoice if you believe there's reason to rejoice. I'm just saying love does not boast. Love is, love is sensitive to those that are around. You may not understand why it is, 
But you and I need to know that there are members of our church family that will see your victory as their defeat. And your reason to rejoice as their reason to be afraid. It goes both ways, no matter who wins. Oh, let us have the humility, let's have the grace to realize that what is a victory for you may be cause of great concern for others. Love conquers boastfulness and political trash talking. There's a fine line, I know. There's a fine line between legitimate joy and relief and boastfulness. But please, seek God's grace to know where to stop. Don't be too loud. Don't celebrate too loudly or publicly because that kind of celebration can feel very much like taunting relational indifference. And on both sides, if they are taunted or feel there is taunting, it can feel like spiritual and moral indifference as well. If your guy wins, tone it down for the sake of all. Number seven, almost done. If you are feeling isolated, invite. If you are feeling isolated, invite. Isn't it true, dear ones, that between COVID or COVID by itself has made us feel isolated? I had a brother in the Lord, an African-American brother and friend say to me recently, not just isolated, but segregated. That recent time seems to have, have brought about isolation and separation. Our relationships have suffered greatly in these days due to an inability to get together in warm and friendly and hospitable climates. On top of that, we wear masks and so we're smile starved. One thing I've come to see in these past few months is how smile dependent I am how hug-dependent I am. And we've lost many of these things for, in ways that uh, no one is to blame. It just is what it is. So it means, in the words of Peter, 1 Peter 4, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I realize that hospitality, as perhaps what's been practiced in the past, may not be fully possible now, but try to get as creative as you can. A cup of coffee at a safe distance, a walk somewhere at a safe distance, somehow connect. I think right now the church, not just ours, but the church broadly is like one of those dot-to-dot things that you see in little children's magazines uh, that just looks like a bunch of dots until until you connect the dots and once you've connected the dots you you see a picture you you see a image you see something there and uh, we're just ever so often these days an individual dot on the page and 
and hospitality and invitation is a way of connecting those dots. And the more dots you connect, the more you see a picture of love and community that appears. If you are isolated, invite, do something to draw closer to others. Number eight, if you are tempted to quit, please don't. If you are tempted to quit, please don't. First Timothy, or First Thessalonians 5, again, be patient among, be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Be long-suffering. What does 1 Corinthians say? Love endures all things, and love never fails. May it be that God will give us the grace of endurance, no matter what happens, so that we will not quit. And finally, if you're tempted to despair, if you're tempted to despair, either going into Tuesday or coming out of Tuesday, if you're tempted to despair, remember that God is on the throne, which is why we had Isaiah 40 read together earlier. Brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, we will not have grace to do any of these things. We will not have faith to do any of these things. We will not have courage to do any of these things if we do not believe that God is on the throne. And whatever happens, our God reigns. Behold your God. Along with other devotions that you're doing, make Isaiah 40 very much a part of your devotional life in these next days and weeks because there and there alone is the hope that we need. Let us do all of this for the glory of God. Let us do all this because we have a Savior who has loved us with this kind of love, a perfect love, and gave himself for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please write these truths upon our heart. Strengthen us. Give us grace. Help us to love one another with a supernatural love poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.